Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to do verse 16 to the end of the chapter. We're going to finish chapter 18 tonight. So that would be down to verse 33. This is the second story in what you could call the Sodom cycle in the book of Genesis. That is, it's the long narrative that culminates in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other cities and also discusses the fallout that happens after that. It takes up a good section of Genesis. And last week we saw the beginning, although if you don't get to this section you wouldn't know it. We saw God visit Abraham and Sarah in the form of three men, and they promised over dinner, Abraham and Sarah were very hospitable to them, they promised that Sarah would have a son the next year, and Sarah laughed at that. And they said, is anything impossible for the Lord? And this was her chance to have her faith built up. Abraham had had his before. And this picks up directly after that story. And in these verses, we will see the primary purpose for which God had come to that region. Why would God leave heaven and come down just to have lunch with Abraham? Well, he wanted to examine Sodom to see if the city warranted divine judgment. So this is a pretty heavy subject to talk about. But God not only reveals that plan to Abraham, he invites him to discuss it with him and invites him to pray for the city's deliverance. This is one of the classic stories in the Bible about the ministry of intercession, of going before God on behalf of someone else. Now, we ourselves, as Christians, like Abraham, have been brought into God's presence. We have been invited to pray. God has revealed his plan and asked us to partner with him and invited us to ask and receive. So, like Abraham, we have the right to expect that our prayers will be heard and answered. But we, very often, read stories like this one. It's amazing stories of prayer. But when we begin to apply that to our own lives, we doubt. We doubt the efficacy of prayer. Whether that's for misguided theological reasons that says things like God's will is so sovereign that he would never allow a human to influence him in any way. And that's not what prayer is. Or maybe we have had a brokenhearted experience before where I prayed and it didn't happen. Therefore, I'm not going to trust God anymore. Or we treat prayer as a nice thing. It makes me feel better. It centers me for the day. But there's no real power there. But Jesus told us through his apostle John. John said in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, this is the confidence that we have toward him. The confidence. What do we have in prayer? Confidence. How much confidence? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And a lot of us will pause there and say, yes, we know God hears our prayers. That's all that really matters is being heard. But he keeps going. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told parables that we ought always to pray and never give up or not to lose heart. And that was the problem that Jesus foresaw in the church, was not that the church would not believe in his salvation, but that they would doubt the efficacy of prayer. And so he told us to never give up. And those words are vindicated in this story of Abraham. And we're going to see why God invites us to pray, as well as how we ought to pray. This is an important lesson on that. And in it, of course, we have a great revelation of the character of God as well. So I'm excited to get into this story 
Let's start at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. We're going to make a brief note before we move on from this verse. The three men who had come to Abraham split up here. We know from chapter 19, verse 1, which we haven't got to yet, that these two were angels that went into the city of Sodom, which means the one that was left was the Lord himself, the third man. And so Abraham goes with them. The other two are going to continue to Sodom, and it's going to be the Lord and Abraham waiting here. And you can see that Abraham went with them. This is a a further extension of his hospitality from the beginning of the chapter. He's not just, I'm going to feed you and then send you on your way. I'm going to feed you and I'll walk with you for a while. And of course, this was the Lord. So why wouldn't he want to walk with him for a while? Now, you know the story. You know that Abraham is going to have a remarkable experience of prayer and intercession here. And I want to emphasize at the beginning that none of this would have been possible if Abraham had not gone with the Lord. If Abraham had not been walking with God, he would not have had this encounter and experience of prayer that he had. James would call him the friend of God in James 2.23. Genesis chapter 5, we read about Enoch who walked with God. Twice it says that. They had a relationship with God. Now, we all have access to God in Christ Jesus. That's what the Lord won for us at the cross. We have access to God. And he's made us these incredible promises. But it is only those who have walked with God and have cultivated that relationship who will experience these things. God is a person. We know that, don't we? And prayer is a conversation with that person. It's not enough to ignore God every single day until you need something and then come and line up a bunch of Bible verses and say, therefore, you have to do what I say. This is a relationship. It is a conversation between you and God. We're not going to read the whole story for time's sake, but in Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11, it says that Moses would take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. And anybody could go there to pray. But when Moses went there to pray, all the people would stick their heads out of the tents and watch because the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire would follow him to the tent and meet him there. And all the people would worship as Moses was in there praying. And that's when he would come out and his face would be glowing. You know that story. And it says at the end of that passage, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I find that story fascinating because anybody had the right to go to this tent and meet God. But why did God only come when Moses was there? Because Moses had a history with God. He had cultivated that relationship. They were friends, it says. And this is what it takes in order to develop that kind of prayer relationship with God. Consider David. David spent years out in the fields watching sheep with no hope of ever advancing beyond that. So when David had nothing to gain from it, he was getting to know God. He was writing psalms to the Lord. He was praying, and God saw that, that this guy wasn't using the worship of God to advance himself like Saul was, but someone who really cared. Consider the disciples who knew Jesus personally, and that when they prayed, God listened because they had known him. 
It's the same thing for Abraham. You've got to be like these and seek the Lord out. To take advantage of that opportunity, God has also pitched a tent for you. Don't be one of those who watches someone else do it and worship at the tent. Look what God is doing through Moses. Isn't that wonderful? Be like Joshua who said, well, if God's there, I'm not leaving here. I'm staying here because God is here. He never left. And of course, Joshua was the next one that God would use mightily. If you have not disciplined yourself to seek God's face, to pray and to read and to worship, you are not going to experience what Abraham experienced, although it is available to you. It has nothing to do with God's willingness, but it has everything to do with your lack of relationship with your Lord who bought you with his own blood. So I want to make this very clear because we can say, well, I tried all that, but if we keep ourselves at arm's length from God until we want something, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from him. Abraham walked with God. Moses walked with God. David, the disciples, and they were heard. It's the same thing for you and for me. I wanted to talk about that before we move on because I couldn't pass that up. It was too great. Let's keep going. Verse 17, and we'll go down to verse 19 now. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, literally, I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 17 is a verse I wish could be said about me. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You ever have some really great news and you just got to tell somebody or you're walking through something really difficult and you're not going to tell a lot of people, but you got that one friend that I'm not going to keep it from them. That's what God's relationship was like with Abraham. He's going to reveal his plan to Abraham and seek his input. It is a doctrinal fact that according to the Bible, God reveals his plans to his people. We see it right here. God's about to do something. So what, am I going to hide it from Abraham? Why would I hide it from him? I chose him. We see it through Jeremiah, who had not only a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem, but the plan to restore them after 70 years. You see it through Jesus, of course, who was constantly revealing to his people what was going to happen. The Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, telling them, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be put into the hands of sinful men. John of course, the evangelist who gave us the book of Revelation. God reveals his plans. In fact, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Amos is one of my favorite obscure books of the Bible, by the way. If you ever want one that you're not super familiar with and you want to read quickly, check out the book of Amos. But chapter 3, verse 7, it says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Let me read that again. The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God reveals what he's going to do. God created a world to fill with his people for his glory. This is what he did when he made the world. He delights in revealing his plans to us. Now you might say, why? Well, you like revealing your plans to your children, don't you? You want to tell them what you're going to do, and you're going to tell your wife what you're going to do. You're going to share with your close friends. When you're working on something, you want them to come and see it? The Lord loves us. And not only does this reveal that God loves us, that he's willing to condescend to us, but it shows us the wisdom and the power of God. 
Isaiah 46.10 says, there's no God like me. I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. It says, go to your stupid idol and ask if your idol can tell you what's going to happen in the future. The Bible is, is full of the revelation of what's going to happen, isn't it? Prophecy, we call it. Many of it has already been fulfilled. Read through the Gospels. How many times does it say, this was to fill what was written? There are many that have not yet been fulfilled. I mentioned the book of Revelation already. The book of Daniel gives you the trajectory of nations to the return of Jesus. And this has been a point of persuasion for many people throughout church history. That when I saw how God had predicted what was going to happen in Jesus' life, and not only that, but throughout history, I was compelled to believe. Which is why, by the way, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about prophecy. Not just future, but present and fulfilled prophecy. We even saw in the book of Acts, remember Agabus? A couple times you saw the prophet Agabus in the church, revealing to the church what was about to happen, that a famine was coming, or that Paul was going to be arrested. And the New Testament makes clear that God has not stopped revealing his prophetic word. In fact, Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2 as well, they talked that the prophetic word would increase in the last days. Now we say, that's very cool, but I haven't seen that. Well, I would take you right back to those who maintain a very flimsy relationship with the Lord are not going to see this. Or they'll miss it. God tries to reveal something to us and we dismiss it because that couldn't possibly be real. Or God speaks to us and we misinterpret it according to our own passions. God tells us A and we interpret B, C, D, E, and F, which God did not reveal to us. And so it feels like God didn't say anything. But, I mean, I almost don't like talking about this doctrinally, although it's important because just about every Christian I've ever met has had a moment where God spoke to them and showed them something that was going to happen, even if you didn't realize it at the time. A dream you've had or a word that somebody gave you or a scripture that just leaped off the page at you and was exactly what your situation was going through. That's what it means to serve a living God. You don't serve an idol. He's not mute. He's not deaf. He speaks to his people. You've got a giant book in your lap that testifies to the fact that God reveals himself. So God says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham the plan. In the same way the Lord would say, shall I hide from my church what I'm about to do? Amos 3, 7, the Lord does nothing without first revealing it to his prophets. But not only does God reveal his plan to Abraham, he's going to invite him into the decision-making process. He's going to open the door for intercession. As I said, God desires a relationship with his people. That was a phrase we used to use a lot, but we need to make sure we understand the full impact of what that means. God wants to know you. And that involves not just revealing the plan, but even hearing what you have to say about it. That's called prayer and intercession. Ezekiel chapter 22 gives us an example of this. Because I know we hear that and we go, I don't know about that though. God does things on his own. God doesn't need my input. Well, no, he doesn't need your input, but he seeks it. Check out Ezekiel 22, verses 29 through 31. He says, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and needy and extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I, says the Lord, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. What's he saying? I see all the garbage that the land is going through. 
And I know that in my justice, I cannot allow this to go unpunished. But I am so full of mercy, I want to show mercy. So I looked. I looked around the whole nation for one man to stand in the gap and intercede for my city and for my people. But I didn't find one. So I'm bringing my indignation. God says, I was willing to delay the exile of Judah if somebody had prayed for it. But he says, I didn't find anyone who prayed. That's remarkable. That's tremendous. That God wanted to show mercy and was looking for someone to intercede for the people. And we say, well, what about the will of God? Listen, I don't think it's healthy for us to think about the will of God as like a fixed script that's already been written. Do you remember, I'll give you an example of, of that kind of fixed will that cannot be broken. Do you remember in the book of Daniel when they tricked the king into establishing the law that everybody must pray to him and if you pray to anybody else for 30 days you get thrown to the lions and it says the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be broken. But then King Darius finds out what they were trying to do and it said he spent all day trying to get Daniel saved. Try to get him out of that. Try to get around the law and find a loophole but no you've already expressed your will and you can't change it. That's not how it is with the Lord. As if God is like, oh, I would, but I can't because I already... That's not how it is with the Lord. The Lord delights in showing mercy. We're going to talk about that. So God's a person. God is a person. And while it might seem odd to you and odd to me, it is plainly revealed in Scripture that God solicits prayer from His people. God solicits intercession from His people. He's done that for you, not just Abraham. Jesus told us in John 16, 23 through 24, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus says, I'm about to go to my Father. When I go to my Father, you'll get to ask him directly in my name and he'll give it to you. He has invited you into that relationship. Now, if all these things I'm saying were our idea, then we'd be in serious hot water. But it's not my idea. It's what God himself says. You have been brought into God's confidence by way of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus have the authority to ask and receive from his Father? Yes, he does. John eleven forty two. 42, Jesus said, I know that you always hear me. That only makes sense. They have that triune relationship. The Father and the Son, He asks and He receives. And then Jesus says, come and ask in my name. And then we start to evaluate ourselves? No, no, no. In Jesus' name. You go to cash a check, what matters is whose name is on it. Well, I don't have this kind of money. Well, obviously not. Somebody else gave it to you. This is crucial for us to understand. The ministry of prayer and intercession has begun at God's initiative. It is not our idea, it is His. For Abraham to pray the prayer that he's about to pray without God's asking him to do so would have been way out of line. But God had a relationship with Abraham and said, here's what I'm going to do. What do you have to say about that? Jesus did the same thing. I'm sending you out to accomplish my mission. I want you to have full access to me. Ask and receive, and I'll give it to you. God's idea. We have to know that. 
Because we like to evaluate prayer based on ourselves, which is not good. If we evaluate based on ourselves, well, of course, we shouldn't expect anything. And as we're going to see, too, to scoff at prayer or to dismiss it as somehow less than spiritual is to reject God's own word. Sometimes I'll say, well, if you're asking God to do something and he's already made his plan, and then isn't that impertinent? Isn't that standing up where you have no business being? Well, it would be if it wasn't what God had said. And it's not some nonsense, by the way, about, well, prayer is just about us coming to terms with God's will. That's not what the Bible says. That sounds great. That prayer is not about changing things, it's about changing me. Have you heard that? There's no chapter and verse for that. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. And if you're going to make that mean anything other than what it says, you're standing off of the foundation of the B-I-B-L-E. And if that's because we are trying to fit in in a materialistic, skeptical world, then we ought to repent of that. And if it's because you feel like God has broken your heart, then you need to come back and get to know God a little better because he wouldn't do that to you. I speak strongly on prayer because I know this is where all our power lies. And when you look at just the Bible, just the Bible, forget your own experience, forget history, forget all that. What does the Bible say? You would come away with the most radical theology of prayer that would freak people out a little bit. And so we cannot allow ourselves to be shamed out of that. We're captive to the word of God. We need to go back and cultivate that relationship so that when we ask and receive, we will indeed receive. Now you might ask yourself, well, why would God do that? Okay, God invited Abraham into the plan. Why would he do that? God invited me. Why would he do that? You see it right there in verses 18 and 19. He says, because I have chosen to raise up Abraham into a mighty nation. He's going to bless all others. And do you see how? By raising up his children and his household to be a righteous and just nation after the Lord himself. God was going to use Abraham to bring about the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, right? But there was also another plan that God says, I'm going to make you Abraham. And then through Isaac and then through Jacob, whose name was also Israel. I'm going to make you into my holy nation, that your family is going to stand apart and you as a nation are going to change the world. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, it says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. We've talked about this, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, these are angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. The nations of the world have been given over to the principalities and powers that they have chosen to worship apart from the Lord, and they suffer for it. That's what Ephesians 6 refers to. It's what Daniel 10 refers to. Now, God's answer to the problem of a city like Sodom, a nation like Egypt or Babylon or Rome, God's answer to that, to these, these unholy false gods that were leading the people astray, what Paul would call principalities and powers, his answer to that was, I will pick one man. You get the whole world, I'll pick one guy. And from that one guy whose wife can't even have children, I will raise up a nation that will take over 
everything. That, that kingdom will extend over the whole world. Now, of course, ultimately, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it will be fulfilled when he returns. But Exodus 19.6, the Lord told the Israelites, you will be my kingdom of priests. You'll stand between me and the world. You have priests in Israel, but Israel itself would be a priest nation to bring the rest of the world to the Lord. So God took special care to reveal himself to them, to show them his ways. He said, I'm going to form you into the people that I need you to be in order to accomplish this plan, just as he has done with you. And he said, I'm no son of Abraham. Well, no, but you are a son of Abraham in faith because you have been blessed by his son, Jesus Christ. You are, as Paul would say in Galatians, a son or a daughter of Abraham. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, explains that just as Abraham's children had a mission, so to speak, to be the anti-nation, this is our ministry. It tells us, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ's kingdom has not come yet, but he has sent us out as ambassadors instead Go and tell the whole world the kingdom is coming. Kiss the sun lest he be angry. That's our mission. Reconciliation. We're the salt and the light of the world. Aren't we? God has given us his spirit to live out that life and to show the whole world what it really means to know the living God. He's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live that life. And he's brought us into his counsel and said, ask whatever you need and I'll give it to you to accomplish that mission. So your prayers are not just for your carnal pleasure. That's the thing that we always get concerned about, and it causes us to be less biblical on our teaching about prayer. We've got to be careful about that because we know that there are crazy people saying all kinds of crazy things about prayer. That if you pray hard enough, there's going to be a Maserati in your garage tomorrow morning. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, James addresses that. He says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. But let's just assume that we're asking for the right things. Well, then all the things that God has promised us about prayer make sense because it's not just my will, but it's God's will too. And God says, I'm going to bring Abraham in because he's the one I've chosen to fulfill this mission. In the same way that God goes, I'm going to bring the church into my council because I've chosen them to fulfill a mission. Through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He's already blessed Sodom once. Do you remember in chapter 14 when he saved them after the kings came in and ravaged the city? He's going to save them again or try to. And through his son Jesus, we all receive salvation. And today we continue the ministry. We continue the blessing of the nations by living out the Christian life by God's Holy Spirit. So you are special to God. We read verse 17 and we say, oh, I wish God would speak that way about me. Guess what? He has. He has said that. He has brought us in. He has invited us in. He has seated us at his banqueting table. Like it says in Psalm 23, he anoints our head with oil in the presence of our enemies. So he's involved you in the process. 
like he's now involving Abraham in the process. He's opening up the gates of heaven to Abraham, just like he's opened up the gates of heaven to you through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, to fulfill his mission because, just as it was true for Abraham and true for Sodom, it's true today. Judgment is coming. And we need heaven's help to complete the work and to save as many as we can. And that's what Abraham's going to pray for in just a few verses. But let's move on right now to verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, these verses are written here as, as deliberation in God's mind. Like, I'm going to say this to Abraham, but imagine this. The other two have gone on, and the Lord, in, in that human form, holds Abraham back and says, Hey, stay back. I want to talk to you for a minute. He says they're looking down at Sodom, which means they're probably up somewhere. They're on a, the top of a knoll or a hill, and it's on the shores of the Dead Sea. And they're seeing that. And the Lord turns to Abraham, and he says, The outcry against Sodom is very great. And I know that their sin is awful. I've come here, Abraham, to see if it's time to destroy them or not. Imagine that. God talking to you like that and bringing you into his counsel like that. He's going to investigate the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of other stories from this time other ancient Near Eastern stories that talk about the noise, the outcry of the people, and some scholars who really don't know what they're talking about have tried to tie this story to those stories, because there's stories from Babylonian legends where a god was trying to sleep and the people were so loud, the god came down and killed a whole lot of them, so that way it would quiet the noise. It's not that kind of outcry. I think that's pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> this kind of outcry is a complaint. It's a complaint to God against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the martyrs in the book of Revelation that are under the altar and they said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That kind of outcry. Exodus 3, verse 7. You've heard this one probably. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You remember in chapter 4, verse 10, Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. It's that kind of cry. The Lord hears the afflicted and the oppressed, those that sought him, which was the power in the region, who they had ground under their heel. The Lord says, I've heard their cry, and it's a great cry. Isn't that comforting to know that God hears the cry of the downtrodden? He hears the cry of the one in a concentration camp or those who are enslaved those whose cities have been ravaged and their children taken away, those who are being constantly repressed by their government, the Lord hears those cries, even if nobody else does. And even if no one answers you back, the Lord hears that. And not only that, but he sees the sin of Sodom, which he says was very grave. And in this context, he's talking about the oppression that they had exercised. But of course, as we go through the story, it just gets worse and worse with Sodom. Ezekiel 16.49 says, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. God sees all that. And he's coming down to examine Sodom to see if the outcry is legitimate. It's, it's a fact-finding mission, so to speak. This is reconnaissance. Go to Sodom. We've had all these prayers coming in. 
of all these people crying out for justice. Go to Sodom. I'm going to go down and see. I'm going to send my two angels to go and look. In Zechariah chapter 1, go read it on your own time, but Zechariah has a vision of the angel of the Lord and his horsemen patrolling the earth and looking and seeing what's going on. God does not sit idle and distant in the heavens, but he visits nations, he visits families, just like he visited Abraham. Which is good for us to know, that the Lord sees and the Lord hears, and God is just, isn't he? The Lord knows exactly how much of an outcry is legitimate. I'll confess to you, it seems like every other group in our country at least is crying out about some kind of oppression or being pushed back or oppressed in some way. And because I live here and I only get it through the TV or the internet, how am I supposed to know what's right? Amen. People say, oh, they're being beaten down or we're being restricted or whatever group it is. And I'm supposed to take your word for it? When you know that somebody's got an agenda and somebody's got a plan and you know that they will turn the screws on you in order to get what they want, you can get really cynical because how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know this is real? Because then somebody else brings up stats and shows, well, it's really not that bad, but then this person has a story, and you go back and forth. How are you supposed to know? You know what I can take comfort in? God knows it all. He's a righteous judge. He knows when a person's being oppressed, and he knows when somebody is at fault themselves. He also knows when that's just life and that's the way it goes. And you know what? Even for you, you ever, maybe when you were younger, let's say that, you ever have like your first boss and you couldn't believe how harsh and how hard he was to you and it was so unfair? And then you get a little older and you look back and you go, wow, yeah, I was a little punk, wasn't I? I was snotty in that job. And then you find yourself saying things to people like, that's not so bad, get over it. You know what they did when I was your age? And then you even think these weird thoughts like, oh, I'd love to see him again and see how he's doing. It's like, I hated that guy. What's my deal? Because when you're the one in it and you're getting the raw end of the deal, we always tend to think that we're the ones being victimized. And sometimes that's not the case. God knows, though. And lucky for us, as we're about to read too, God does not punish unfairly. God does not have to look at all the evidence people present. God's like, I'm going to go myself and see what's going on. The righteous do not get judged with the unrighteous. Even though God destroyed Jericho, Rahab was saved. Even though Jerusalem was destroyed, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were brought out. Lot will be taken out of, uh, out of Sodom. We believe in the rapture, that the Lord does not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. So God has revealed his plan to Abraham. He reveals his plan to us. He's invited him to respond as he has with us. We know his desire. We know his justice. And now we're going to see how Abraham prayed as an example for our own lives. So we've kind of explained why prayer? You know, <laughs> why do we pray this way? Why are we even allowed to pray? Why would God do this? Now we're going to move on to the how. Okay, if all this is true, how then ought we to pray? We're going to look at how Abraham did it, and we're going to try and do it like that. Starting at verse 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, 
If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So verse 22, it says that Abraham stood before the Lord. An interesting note. Those who first added what we call vowel pointing to the Old Testament text, the Hebrew has no vowels in it, if you've ever heard about that before. Those who first added those points were called the Masoretes. They were a group of scribes. And it is what we call the Masoretic text that forms the foundation of our Old Testament translations today. They have notes that they have kept where they said traditionally there were 18 changes that were made to the original text. And they would say things like to avoid uh, lack of clarity and to avoid blasphemy. And one of the things they changed was where it said, Instead of Abraham stood before the Lord, it said the Lord stood before Abraham. So the original was probably not that Abraham was before the Lord, but God was before him. Now, to their mind, they couldn't fathom the idea of God standing in a place of like a servant would stand before Abraham, and so they changed it. To which we say, we appreciate the effort, but I want to know what the Bible said, <laughs> not what your interpretation is. So little note there, it doesn't change it radically to our mind, but for their culture, that was a rather big deal. So the point is that they're having a conversation like we've described. Now, knowing all that we know about what God has done and why he's done it, we see that Abraham prays with great humility, but with great boldness too. You see him here, he's, he's speaking respectfully, probably more respectfully than, than we would feel comfortable with. You know, if you were in here praying to Lord, we're but dust and ashes, we might like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And some of that is the, the effect of what Jesus has said about coming to, to pray. But he's praying with humility, but with boldness. And he's begging God to show mercy to Sodom. And you know what's crazier even than that? God is listening to him. He's praying, and God is saying, okay. If you have been called into God's office, let's use that metaphor here. You get a buzz at your desk, and God says, hey, can you come down to my office? I want to talk to you about something. And he sits you down, and he says, we're thinking that we need to destroy Sodom. What do you say? Now, if you were to refuse to give any kind of input because you're trying to be respectful and spiritual, that, that's sort of a faux respect, isn't it? He said, what, what do you think about that? And you said, oh, I, I wouldn't dare to say anything to you. And he said, no, no, come on. I, I want to know what you think. Oh, no, no, I wouldn't. Your will is perfect. And he's like, yeah, okay, I asked you. I asked you. It sounds spiritual, but it's not. It's actually less spiritual because you don't have enough faith to believe that when God said ask, he meant ask. So you must be bold when you come to pray. I've got a verse for it. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence, boldness. I used to think it was funny when I was a kid. My father was a pastor. And to me, that I knew that was special, but that certainly didn't put him out of my reach as his son. So I, I kind of had the run of the church because I was there all the time. And so he'd be back there doing something. And I'd grab one of my little friends and say, hey, come on, let's go in here. I want to show you something. They said, we can't go in there. That's the pastor's office. Like, it's just my dad. Come on, let's go. Come on in. And then we'd bring him in like, hello, Pastor Troy. And, you know, it was funny. I, even when I got into high school, I'd invite friends over and we'd be goofing off and doing what we always do. And then dad would get home and, you know, they'd straighten up and they'd fix their collar. And, you know, uh, hello, uh, Reverend Warner. Very, very nice to see you. And, you know, he, he hated it when people called him Reverend. It's, it was really funny. But, you know, it's like that. I had confidence in his presence because I was his son. And that person who was there was not his son, but he was with me. And I was his son. So when you come before God, you might say, well, I don't belong here. I'm not your son. It doesn't matter. You're with his son. And his son has full access to his father and has granted you that same access. So when you come to prayer, pray boldly. Get up and ask for miracles. Why do we always pray for things that could probably happen anyway? Ask for a miracle. So I don't want to ask for too much. You guys, can I say something very carefully and hope you receive it? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus prayed, Lord, if there's any other way than the cross, let's do that. If Jesus was willing to pray that prayer, which we don't even like saying out loud because it sounds so wrong, shouldn't you ought to have at least a fraction of that boldness? To step in and ask for God to intercede in tremendous displays of power. Not to suit your own carnal flesh. But to fulfill the mission he's given you. Look at how Abraham speaks. He says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing. He refers to God's character. He refers to his promises as his foundation for bold prayer. He doesn't say, you can't do that. He says, Lord, you're the righteous judge. You only judge fairly. And then there might be righteous people there. Are you going to sweep all that away? No, no, you can't. You can't do that. You're too good for that. What, What if there's 50 righteous people? This is important to know. You can't just show up and make demands. James 4 verse 3 makes that very clear. You don't just get to ask with impudence. Because he says you're not going to expect to receive anything from God. You pray boldly, but you appeal to who God is. Praying according to God's will, we sometimes speak about that like we're playing darts. We have no idea what God's will is, but we kind of have an idea. So we're going to fire out this prayer, and hopefully it lands right in the center of God's will. If not, we'll try it again. You're like playing battleship, you know, trying to find where God's will is. That's a terrible understanding of God's will. Instead, you look at God's nature. You look at his character. You look at his promises and his covenants. You look at how he's dealt with you in the past, how he's dealt with others in the Bible in the past. You look at his word. You look at his love. And then you ask in accordance with that. If you ask for something that is loving and would further the gospel and is not sinful, why would you be afraid to pray for that? Well, it might not be exactly what he wants. But you don't know exactly what he wants. So pray in alignment with his, with his character and his nature and his word. In fact, you're probably looking at the situation and you could see how there could be three or four options all within the nature and character of God. 
say, well, I don't know which one to pray for. You pray for the one that you would like to see. That's what asking is. Abraham says, Lord, you be fully within your rights to judge these people, but there might be righteous ones. Lord, show them mercy. That's what prayer is. We're looking at what God has said and standing on that, asking in hopes of receiving. This is why Peter could use very similar language with Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. Well, Abraham says it, and God said, yes, I said it, and Jesus called me Satan. Mark 8, 33. Why is that? Because there was nothing of God in Peter's words. Peter was, as he said, thinking according to the ways of man. There was nothing of God in it. And even though they used the same language, they got a very different response because they were not coming at it spiritually. If you've ever read a book by Andrew Murray, and if not, I highly recommend it, he often speaks in the language of prosecution when you're talking to God. He says, you lay out the facts. You, you present a case before the Lord. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are merciful. There might be righteous people there. Therefore, you can't just smoke that city, Lord. You're laying it out. And of course, that's a respectful metaphor. And if it's not helpful to you, then set it aside. Spurgeon would talk about that way too, about pressing your case before the Lord. This is, going back to what we said at the beginning, well, you need to know God. You need to know his ways. You need to know how he would act. So that when you start making petitions, you're not going to ask for something crazy. And the astonishing thing is that this works. Not only here, but repeatedly in Scripture. God delays judgment or shows mercy or acts on behalf of someone for the reasons we've just laid out. By laying out the character of God and laying out the situation and, and asking desperately, God says, okay, we'll do it that way. Exodus 32. This is the story of the golden calf. Remember this story? When they were standing on the foot of the mountain while Moses is up receiving the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the mountain is on fire and God has manifested his Shekinah glory. He's just delivered them out of Egypt and parted the waters and preserved them through the desert. And they say, let's make a golden calf and we'll worship that instead. Well, the Lord saw that and when he's on the mountain, in Exodus 32, verses 10 through 14, it says this, God said to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He says, This sin is so awful, I'm going to torch them all and start over with Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses pressed his case. God would have been fully within his rights to destroy all of those people. But instead, Moses lays out all these reasons. No, these are the people you just saved. You love them. They were a demonstration of your power. The Egyptians are going to say that you're not a good God because you destroyed them. 
You, you, you remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember your promises? Please don't do this. Turn away from that. And God said, okay. Abraham is, is haggling with God here. What about 50? Okay, I won't do it for 50. What about 45? I mean, if you're willing to do 50, you might as well do 45 because it's only five difference. Okay, fine, 45. 40, 30, 20, 10. Why would God listen to Abraham do that? Why would he listen to Moses after that grievous sin? As Moses was praying that prayer, they were down there having an idolatrous orgy in the name of the Lord God. Why would God listen to him? Because God delights in showing mercy. I want you to note this very carefully here in the book of Genesis, chapter 18. God was more concerned with the lives of the ten potential righteous people than the many wicked people in the city of Sodom. He considered their lives more valuable than the sins of Sodom. And that is a great comfort to me. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I wish that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and live. God doesn't want to judge people with fire and brimstone. I don't know why we portray him that way sometimes. We think, I can't believe God would do that. Why? He must be awful. And God's like, hey, I don't like it either. <laughs> God's I don't take pleasure in this. But if you doubt that, if you doubt that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, you need to think of the cross, Christian. God chose to put his own son on that cross than to watch you endure the full judgment of his wrath in hell. The Lord takes every opportunity to show mercy. Remember Jonah? God sent Jonah to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, the people that would behead people and decorate the wall with it and skin people alive and hang them from the walls and, and have the, the kings that they had conquered pull the chariots into the cities with bits and bridles in their mouth and put hooks in the slaves and pull them along in their skin. And the Lord says, go to them and proclaim repentance to them. And Jonah said, no way, because if I go to that city, you're going to save them and they deserve to die. And God sent Jonah there and Jonah gives the sorriest gospel message you've ever heard. He doesn't even give the appeal. That's a big thing you learn in, in sales or you learn it in, in preaching. You've got to ask the question. He doesn't do that. He just says, this city is going to be destroyed in 40 days because of your sin. And the people repented in sackcloth and ashes. And God says, fine, then I'll, I'll forgive you. And Jonah gets mad. I knew you were going to do that. I knew you delighted in showing mercy. And I didn't want mercy for them. They've been oppressing my people. And God said, look at that city. Look how many people are there. Look how many animals are there. You want me just to destroy that, Jonah? What's wrong with you? The Lord takes every opportunity to show mercy. God, remember in chapter 15, verse 16, the Amorites' iniquity was not yet complete. God will allow a nation to get to the point of no return because he doesn't want to judge people. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord said, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one man who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. God's like, if you can find one righteous person in Jerusalem, I will spare the city. And he tells Jeremiah, run, find one as fast as you can so that I can halt put the brakes on the machinations of nations that I've been setting up to judge my people. Sometimes we're like the Boanerges. We're like the sons of thunder. 
James and John, who wanted to go and stay in a Samaritan city, and the Samaritans didn't let them stay. And they come back out to Jesus, and they said, Hey, says there's nowhere for us to sleep. You want us to call down fire from heaven, Lord? You want us to give us a little Sodom and Gomorrah action? And God's like, What is wrong with you guys? You sons of thunder. The Boanerges. We're like that still. Despite that story being given to us as a bad example, we're always like rubbing our hands to see when's God going to judge stuff. Or we're walking around moping because we think, well, the end must be here for our, our country because it's so bad, God just had to judge us any second now. Or we think, God, you better judge this nation. We need it, Lord. We better get it. Again, read the book of Habakkuk. You might not like what the Lord has to say about that. But look at Abraham's desperate pleas for these awful people. These are the same folks that Abraham said, you take all your stuff back. I don't want anybody to say that I had anything to do with you. But when he stands before God, he is on his knees saying, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, Lord. That should be our attitude too. When we look at our nation and we see the sin there, that should not give us some smug opinion. <laughs> oh, just you wait until God shows up. I should drive you to your knees and say, no, Lord, not yet. I was always confused me when I would go to these prayer meetings and these people are praying for judgment. Why aren't you praying for mercy? Don't pray for your neighbor to get what he deserves. Pray for him to be saved. Don't pray for your wife to finally get it, Lord. Just let it all collapse around her ears until she figures out. No, pray for her heart to be revived. That's God's heart, and it should be yours too. God responds to prayers from his people, especially prayers for mercy. God has a special soft spot for giving people another chance, doesn't he? But that does not mean that God can be bent out of shape to do what he would not otherwise do. You can't say, ah, God, we prayed. You have to now. Remember, God is a person. This is a relationship. A nation or a person can go so far that God must execute justice or he would not be a good judge. It's what Sodom had done. Despite all this, we know what's going to happen, don't we? There weren't even ten righteous people there, and God is going to destroy them. Even in that story in Exodus 32, when God relented from destroying the nation of Israel, you come to the end of it and God says, Moses, I'll show mercy to whoever I want to show mercy to, but it's only those that are written in my book that are going to be saved. And they are still going to have to deal with the consequences of their sin. So this is not as if God is somehow getting his arm pinned behind his back and he's got to do what you say. Even Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done. We do often get caught up in that. And that's the only thing we think about is not my will. But it is essential that we know that. There are even times when God told Isaiah or he told Jeremiah to stop praying. He said, my mind is made up. It's gone too far. This has to happen. So we don't get too big for our britches when we pray. God loves to answer prayers, but don't think that you're somehow calling down things from heaven like you're a wizard on a mountain. Look at Abraham's humility, even in his boldness. I, I have dared to speak before the Lord. We think, come on, man, you're Abraham. Face to face like a friend, remember? Abraham knew his place. There was rank even in his boldness, he did not overstep his bounds. Some folks want to boss God around in their prayers. Please don't be one of those people. And sometimes we, we confuse praying boldly with praying rudely. God, I demand you. 
I command you, Lord. That, oh, geez, just take a break. Don't do that. That's, this is the most high God, don't you understand? If Abraham is the one saying, Lord, I'm dust and I'm ashes, but please. Maybe we can learn a little bit from that, can't we? Well, that's not praying boldly. It was bold, but it was full of humility and it was full of respect. And it was full of obedience to the Lord. Even Jesus, in the agony of his spirit when he was in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. God is a person. This is a conversation. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. He has brought you in. So pray boldly in his name, but pray humbly before the Lord. So why don't we sum this passage up? We have to wait till the next couple weeks to see how it's going to pan out, but let's, let's summarize here. Number one, God has initiated a relationship with us. God has initiated the relationship. He desires to raise us up to be salt and light, to forestall judgment on the world by our ministry. He has a mission for us. So he's initiated a relationship. He has a mission for us. To that end, he has invited us into his counsel to learn his plans and to intercede before him so that we have everything we need to fulfill that plan. He reveals his plans and he invites us to intercede. And that all begins by cultivating a relationship with God. You must know God or all of this is just academic. We can write a great book about it and we can get all the scriptures lined up, but if you don't know God, it doesn't mean anything. Discipline yourself to be his servant. And then when you do pray, speak boldly. Don't be afraid that you're somehow going to miss his will. If you're praying for something that would otherwise be godly, God's not going to get angry at you. Pray in response to God's invitation. Be humble, but be bold. Prosecute your case before the Lord. Refer to his word and his character and his plans to secure what you're asking for. Remember, you were invited there as his child. But finally, remember that God is sovereign and that his will is best. So in the end, you surrender it to him and you trust that he's going to do the right thing. In this case, God is going to indeed be righteous. He's going to save Lot, but he's going to destroy the rest. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that we ought always to pray and to never give up. Hey, have you given up in prayer? Or have you even bothered to pray? You, you agree that praying would be a good idea, but you haven't actually gotten on your knees and bowed your head and said the words, dear Jesus. Be like Moses, who interceded. Daniel, who interceded. Amos and Abraham. And the Lord Jesus, who even now liveth ever to make intercession for us, his people. Get on your knees, Christian. If you had the opportunity to speak your God and make your case before him, and if you knew that he would hear you, wouldn't you do it? Well, I declare to you on the authority of his word that you indeed have that opportunity. Do not waste it, because like Abraham before the Lord, there are lives and there are souls at stake, depending on your prayer.